Chapter Ten of Find the Woman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Find the Woman by Gillette Burgess. Chapter Ten. Witcherly Court, in which John Fenton assists at a social function in high life, wears evening dress for the first time, and again sees Belle Charmion. They had been going up Riverside Drive, and as Morgan spoke, they approached a tall marble apartment house from which an awning stretched across the sidewalk to the curb. Here a line of carriages and automobiles were in line waiting to discharge their passengers. Morgan leaned forward and tapped his chauffeur on the shoulder. Round to the side entrance, he commanded. Here he and Fenton got out, and made their way rapidly in, and along a corridor to the back stairs. They climbed ten stories and arrived panting at the back door of the Morgan apartment, were led in by a staring servant, and conducted rapidly along the hall. As they passed, Fenton heard the continuous sound of gabble, the intermingled talk and laughter of many guests, inarticulate, confused, an unsteady murmur of voices. It sounded to him as if it might come from some monstrous, horrid beast with innumerable mouths. Servants of all kinds skeltered past him as he made his way. Waiters loaded with dishes, maids with ladies' wraps, men-servants gossiping, loafing, gaping. A high, clear voice rose over all this subdued tumult. Marg's holding the fort, said Morgan, admiringly, and led the way in to his own chamber. Now, for heaven's sake, hurry, he exclaimed. Fenton had but time to see a wide white bed laid out with a complete outfit, evening dress clothes, shirt, tie, when two manservants fell upon him and tore off his coat, vest, and trousers with the fury of maniacs. As they held the dress trousers for him, a young lady put her head through the door excitedly. Has he come? she cried, and then, oh, there you are, thank goodness. Fenton took a leap into the black trousers and turned his back just as she burst into the room. Is he ready? she cried eagerly. For heaven's sake, hurry, you idiots. I can't wait a minute longer. Stillwell, put on his shoes, quick. Here, you crazy loon, you've got that collar upside down. For heaven's sake, let me do it, if you're all half-witted. And Fenton found himself suddenly confronted by a tall, pretty, blue-eyed girl with flushed cheeks all in white, with three ostrich feathers nodding in her hair. Hold your head still, she commanded. I can't do anything if you move that way. Here, you, put his gloves on, quick. A man attacked each hand. Stillwell Morgan still fussed at the bows of Fenton's shoes. Marguerite Manganel Morgan, in white gloves, with orchids on her breast, her flushed face within an inch of his, worked over Fenton like a window-dresser with a wax figure. Her sweet breath was in his face. Her curls brushed his cheeks as she patted and pulled at his tie. He saw her pretty mouth working with nervousness. Then she stepped back and looked at him. Mercy, she shrieked. This isn't Mr. Ringrose. Who is it? She stared at him with big eyes and turned scarlet. I believe I have the honor of being Count Capricorni, said Fenton, bowing low. A maid tapped at the door, and entered halfway. Mrs. Gramson Davis wants to see you, Miss Morgan, she said. She has to go home, says she can't wait any longer. Miss Morgan grabbed Fenton by one arm. 
Come, she commanded savagely. I don't care who you are. You'll do. If I can only satisfy that old Mrs. Gramson Davis, I'm safe. And she dragged him out of the room into the hall. Here he asserted himself, offered his other arm, tossed his head erect, and stepped off with her. If he were to play a part, he decided it would be that of a man, not a puppet. Miss Morgan looked up at him with admiration. It was awfully good of you to come, she breathed. It's about time for something like that to be said, he replied haughtily. You treat me right, or I'll spoil the show. Oh, I'll do anything, anything, she exclaimed. Then dropping her voice, she added, I wish you were the Count Capricorni. With this exquisite compliment pleasantly ringing in his ears, he navigated his way through staring, whispering groups of guests and entered the reception room. A buzz of comments greeted them. Everybody stared. They were immediately surrounded. Innumerable introductions began. Fenton, for the first time in his life in evening dress, with a foolish, wild longing that Belcharmian might see him, played his part like a veteran. As one eager, curious person after another was presented, he bowed, shook hands, uttered a pleasantry, laughed and gestured, and shrugged his shoulders as if he had been the petted hero of society all his life. Of all the remarkable situations he had found himself in that mad night, this was perhaps the most dangerous. The very peril of it, however, inspired him. The gaiety of the scene went to his head like a cocktail. His mind worked like an exquisitely adjusted high-speed machine. The crowd, elaborately dressed, wove about him, smiling pretty women and attentive men, the lights of electroliers and cut glass and precious stones flashed in his eyes, the perfume of frangipani and po d'espagne mingled with the wafted odors from the dining-room of oysters and terrapin. The clink of glasses tinkled with laughter-laden voices. The music of an orchestra sobbed and swelled with the voices of heartbroken strings and twittered with love-lorn wood instruments. It all stimulated his imagination to the boiling point. He talked as he had never talked before, of things he knew nothing of, things he didn't believe, things as far outside of his life as Chimborazo or Cambodia. It was the more easy when he perceived that nobody listened. Everyone was hysterical, hypnotized, eager to add his or her nonsense to the general babel. He talked wildly of bridge and golf, of plays he had never seen, of countries he had never visited. But he might as well have said anything, that he was dead and buried, that he had forgotten to wear a shirt, that his mother had whiskers. No one would have noticed. He gossiped of kings and princesses. He mentioned at least seven new wonders of the world. The ladies giggled. The men said, really? And no one knew but that he had been speaking commonplaces. You're doing fine, fine, Miss Morgan whispered to him at the first respite. I'm proud of you. She looked up under her lashes coquettishly. What a pity we're not really engaged. The poor Count. At that there came to him, suddenly, a flash of remembrance of the adventurer, dead in the St. Paul building. The memory swept like a chill wind over his soul, and awakened him to his almost forgotten duty. The jewels! He had forgotten all about them. At this minute he should be speeding up town to Harlem to keep his promise. 
What right had he here in this absurd disguise? The charm of the adventure had gone to his head. Now he must be about his business without delay. Just as he was casting about for a pretext to go, his ears caught the sound of a name, Miss Belle Charmion, and he turned, shocked and trembling, to see before him the girl of his dreams. There she was, olive skin and soft hazel eyes, whimsical mouth, the pretty slender girl he had already seen twice that evening. She was staring at him, and her brows were knitted. Haven't we met before? she asked hesitatingly, as she held out her hand. What could he say? Surely he could not disclaim her acquaintance. Neither could he stultify his hostess. For a moment everything seemed to go black in front of him. Then that very feeling suggested an excuse for not answering. He put his hand to his heart and dropped upon a chair. I feel faint, he murmured. Will you pardon me, Miss Morgan, if I... You'd better go into Still's room for a moment, she suggested. She beckoned to her brother, who came crowding up. Take him out. He's fainting, she commanded. This crush is too much for him. You know he hasn't recovered from that attack of yesterday yet. Fenton staggered out on Morgan's arm, and as the crowd made way for him, he saw Miss Charmion's eyes still upon him, with a puzzled, questioning expression. He felt base and mean. I must get out of here right away, he exclaimed, as soon as they were alone in Morgan's chamber. I've spent too much time already. I've neglected a terribly important errand. You've saved my life, old man, said Stillwell Morgan effusively. I don't know what we ever would have done. You've made an awful hit. People are crazy about you. Why, Marguerite says. Damn, Marguerite, where's that bag I brought? Fenton looked eagerly about the room. I don't know who you are, but I'd be glad to have you consider me your friend. And if I can do... Find that bag, Fenton exclaimed excitedly. Lord, man, if you knew what was in it, he groped under the bed. Why, isn't it here? Say, I'll call one of the men. Morgan went to the door. If that isn't found, I'm ruined, cried Fenton. Haven't you any detectives here? Morgan's valet came running up. A bag, sir? What kind of a bag? A soft bag, gray ooze leather. Hurry, find it right away. What did you do with it? By heavens, I'll send for the police. Perhaps it was taken into the ladies' room, sir. I'll see. While he left to inquire, Fenton fumed. Morgan fussed about, anxious and embarrassed. Was it really valuable, he asked, weakly? Fenton did not answer, but opened drawers, looked in closets, overturned piles of overcoats, looked in hats in frantic haste. Every instant he grew more excited. At last, as he stood flushed and tumbled, trying to think what to do, whether to call for the police, ask that everyone be searched, or appeal to Miss Morgan, the valet returned with the lost bag. Fenton grabbed it from him, and tremblingly looked inside. A blaze of color flashed up from its dark interior. Miss Charmian had it, sir, the valet explained. They thought, of course, it belonged to one of the ladies, and she was there getting ready to go home. Did she look into it? Fenton demanded with anxiety. Oh, no, sir. She just took it, looked at it, and said it wasn't hers. She was too worried to pay much attention. Someone had just telephoned to her, and she was rather upset over it, sir. Fenton heaved a sigh of relief, and turned to Morgan. Is your automobile ready? he asked. The valet interposed. Ready at the door, sir. 
I've got to get away in a hurry, then. Morgan laid a hand on his arm. If you don't wish to wait to change your clothes, Mr. Mr. Fenton, John Fenton. Mr. Fenton, you can send back the suit you have on when you find it convenient. It's no importance, really. And I'll give you a silk hat and an overcoat. Even in the whirl of his excited haste, even with the memory of the dead man always in the back of his mind, even with the responsibility of the jewels keeping him in a fever of unrest, even with the thrill of Belcharmion's near presence disturbing him, the offer tingled a pleasant fancy. He had never worn a silk hat in his life. How he had longed to! Now, in evening clothes, it would be a satisfaction to go forth, robed as a gentleman, clad cap a pay in formal garb. He grinned blushingly, accepted the hat, and gazed at it. He smoothed the nap against his sleeve. Perhaps he might catch a glimpse of Belcharmion again. But no, how disappointing! He had, of course, to exit by way of the servant's staircase. It was too bad. In two minutes he had slipped out and was running downstairs with Morgan's valet. The motor-car was not at the side entrance. They went round to the front of the building in search of it. They found it drawn up in the line of waiting vehicles, and Fenton was just about to enter when, turning, he saw Belcharmion coming out under the awning. He paused in surprise. She looked eagerly to right and left. Catching sight of him, she smiled faintly and walked rapidly up. Could you take me uptown? she asked. I've ordered a taxicab, but it hasn't come, and I'm in a great hurry. I've had an important message. A relative is dangerously ill. I must get up there immediately. I'm awfully worried about it. Why, I shall be delighted, said Fenton. He was trembling in every limb. The idea of being alone with her at last sent him into a fever of excitement. He turned to lead the way, right over here, he said. As he turned, suddenly the bag he was holding in one hand struck sharply against one of the iron stanchions of the awning. It fell to the sidewalk. He looked down. To his horror, some half-dozen pieces of jewelry had fallen out. A ring or two, a brooch, a bracelet, and half in, half out, a confused pile of precious stones sparkling under the light. He looked up to see Miss Charmion staring pale-faced at the revelation. The next minute a uniformed porter ran up to her and touched his cap. Your taxi, Miss Charmion, he said, and bowing, pointed the way to where a green car waited at the curb. Fenton was too embarrassed to speak. He stood foolishly staring as she looked at him coldly and said, Then I shall not need to impose on you, Count, but thank you just the same and drawing herself up she walked proudly to the taxicab turned and gazed at him then got in and drove away not till her car skived the corner and disappeared did fenton take his eyes from her then with a sigh he stooped scraped the jewels into the bag as the porter stared and walked to the morgan's touring car where shall i drive sir the chauffeur inquired it was some moments before fenton could collect his senses enough to recall the address the octoroon had given him. Where was it? The stirring events of the night had all but obliterated her words. Somewhere in Harlem. Oh, yes, the Norcross. 505. No, 555. West 146th Street. That was it. 
He gave the address, got into the car beside Carl, the chauffeur, and they whirled away. He crammed his silk hat down hard over his ears and leaned back in the car to enjoy the ride. The brisk, mild wind ran merrily past him. The winking lights on the Jersey shore flashed brightly across the Hudson. His brain cleared. Surely he had much to think of. Much had happened since he left his Harlem home a careless, thoughtless boy. But there was only one thing he could think of now. He put all other things aside and reveled in his dream. He thought of nothing but Belle Charmion. He wanted no one but Belle Charmion. Belle Charmion in low-cut pale blue voile. Belle Charmion of the olive skin and whimsical smile. Who was Belle Charmion? What fate had led him continually in crossing and recrossing paths towards Belle Charmion? Did she know or care what destiny allied them in this mysterious way? John Fenton and Belle Charmion? He loved Belle Charmion. Could Belle Charmion love him? When would they meet in peace, in joy? When would they talk and tell what he so longed to hear, he and Belle Charmion? Oh, the smooth, soft contour of her cheek, the exquisite gesture of her hand. So he dreamed, fancy-free, in joyous abandon of Belle Charmion. Belle Charmion, Belle Charmion. Say, this is one great night, ain't it? Fenton came down with a thud from the clouds of romance to the chauffeur's commonplace. He gave the remark a mumbling reply. Fine. Yes, it's the wrong kind of a night to go home in, as Ruby Diamond used to say. Diamond? Fenton queried, remembering the phenomenal blonde of the Caxton. Do you happen to know Miss Diamond? That's queer. The chauffeur laughed. Know her? I drove the front cab with her and young Framingham when they busted up the Yale funeral. Do you know a girl she runs with, named Millie something? A little black-eyed devil? Millie St. Valentine? Well, I guess yes. She's the one that drove the hearse with John Adams Quincy the third. The hearse? What the deuce was the Yale funeral, anyway? Say, I guess you'd better tell me about it, if it isn't too long a story. The chauffeur chuckled to himself. It was lucky for Quincy it wasn't a longer story, he said. It was short, but it certainly was lively. I'll tell you about it. And, as he gave the steering wheel a sharp turn and turned the car into 94th Street, he began. The Great Yale Funeral. Why, this was Thanksgiving Day, a year ago. You remember the football game when Harvard trimmed Yale for the first time in nine years. Six to four, the score was and every Cambridge man in New Haven went crazy. I wasn't there, but I hear it was like a matinee in an ancient Roman amphitheater. After the preliminary orgies, the Harvard rioters went to Boston to celebrate. The pride and chivalry of Yale was due in New York to drown their sorrows in a theater party at the Marrying Mary show. Well, there was one Harvard rooter who was so spifflicated by the triumph that he couldn't box the compass any more. That was John Adams Quincy the Third. He was genially kidnapped by some of the speedy sons of Eli, with no hard feelings, and the first thing he knew they had him in the Yale train pulling out for New York. When he began to look out the window for New London, he suspected that something was wrong, 
but it was too late to do anything by that time. He would have to miss the crimson fire and the gilding of John Harvard and the Cambridge police after all. The Yale men gave him the ha-ha and told him little old New York would have to do. So he made the best of it and went, reminding them of the score and the snake dance every time he opened a bottle, which was plenty often. He was a thoroughbred, that Quincy the Third. He was a spender, and he had money to spend. He was fairly poisonous with greenbacks. Old man Quincy was a triple-dyed billionaire in the first place, and in the second young Quincy had backed the Harvard Eleven for about $5,000 at two to five. He had something like $16,000 in his pants when he got off the train at the Grand Central Station. By that time, almost every Yale man in his car was down and out, but John Adams Quincy Third was walking on the atmosphere, shedding $10 bills at the slightest provocation. I was running a taxicab then, and of course I never knew anything about his start till afterwards when Millie told me all about it. My first sight of the fun came when I was standing in front of the Abbots on 45th Street waiting for a fare, and young Quincy blew round the corner from Jack's. Now, I wouldn't want to say Quincy was soused, exactly. That's an ugly word for a gent like him. But you might say he was, well, glorified-like, exhilarated, transmogrified. I don't know what you'd call it. I never had $15,000 between me and working for a living, and I ain't sure how it feels. But Quincy was happy. There was no doubt about that. His hat was dented in, and his collar was marked all over six to four, and he was singing his Harvard lay to the tune of Three Blind Mice. Yale is dead, Yale is dead, Yale is dead. Eli said, Eli said, Eli said. They might grow crimson, but we'd grow blue. They gobbled our money at five to two. We let them have it, then what did we do? Yale is dead. You know the Abbots? It's mostly a press agent's club. Theatrical men, anyway. Well, Johnny Hobbs of the Hippodrome was just coming out the door with Nat Goodwin and a bunch of actors. Quincy recognized the big chap. So he come up and slapped him on the back and said, Hello, Nat. How are you? Goodwin beamed. Why, I'm a hygienic dream, he said. Yale's dead, says Quincy. Then you ought to give her a first-class funeral, says Nat Goodwin. He took Quincy's arm and spoke confidentially. None of these cloth-covered pine boxes with two hacks at $85. You ought to have at least 27 carriages and a band. By the jumping John Harvard, I will, says Quincy. But not twenty-seven hacks, twenty-seven hearses, and then some. Nat walked away with his bunch, laughing. Quincy stood, thinking it out. Johnny Hobbs looked him over thoughtfully. Do you mean it? he asked. If you do, I got an idea. Do I mean it? Ain't I alone in a great city after the first time we've busted into Yale in nine years? I'm certainly going to celebrate if it costs me my inheritance. And Quincy pulls a roll of yellowbacks out of his hip pocket and shows enough money to make Johnny Hobbs fairly sick to his stomach. You come right in here, says Johnny. I'll fix you for fair. 
Wait till I get to the telephone, and I'll have all the dead wagons in New York here in half an hour. You won't have to celebrate alone, neither. I'll present you to the smashingest little brunette in town, and if she don't drive that Yale hearse for you, she'll never get another engagement on the stage while I'm alive. With that, he pulls Quincy into the Abbots. My fare come out just then, and I clocked him to the Astor Hotel. Well, just as I was pocketing my tip, this young Framingham chap come by with a bunch of men with Yale flags, all as sizzy as skyrockets. Ever heard of Montrose Framingham? Why, old President Framingham's son, you know. The New York and Pennsylvania Railroad man. The man they used to call Gold Socks Framingham after he cornered that western timber pool. The old man had money enough to wrap up the Metropolitan Tower in and tie it with a gold string. And he never was stingy with Montrose. It was him give Yale that big ancient history building in his freshman year. That's why he never got fired, although he certainly was some lively round about New Haven. Well, as I was saying, young Framingham come up to me. I'd driven him all over town, once I took him to Richmond, Virginia, in my cab on a bet. And he says, Hello, squash. The fellows call me that because I like squash pie with a layer of red pepper on top of it. What in the name of Eli are you driving a red taxi for? I thought you was a good Yale man. I hear Yale's dead, says I, grinning. You yellow-eyed clockwork crook, he says. For two cents I'd drown you in cylinder oil. Who told you that? I got it from John Adams Quincy the Third. I says. And what's more, he's going to give Eli a funeral in New York right away tonight. Is that right, he says. Honest? I told him what I'd heard in front of the Abbots, and he called after his gang to come back and hear. When I gave them the tale, they yelled like Comanches. Get into here, says Framingham, and he gets upside of me, and the rest pile into the back, and I took em round to the front of the Astor. There Framingham got out and ran up to the cab starter. Order all the taxicabs you can get, he says. The starter was staggered. What do you mean, sir, he says. How many do you need? Anything up to a hundred. And have em here in half an hour, round the corner says Framingham. Then he comes up to me and asks me who is the press agent for the Metropolis Theatre. I told him it was Abby Moonstone, and we started to look him up. What are you going to do? I asked Framingham. I'm going to bust up that funeral, he says, if it costs me my degree, and I knew he meant it. Well, it didn't take us long to find Abby at the Knickerbocker Bar, and it didn't take Abby long to see what they was in it for him, and the Metropolis Theatre. He hurried out and rung up Ruby Diamond, his first prize showgirl, and by the time we got round to the Woodstock Hotel, where she lived, she was ready for us in a pale blue slippery skin-tight dress and a millionaire hat. The rest was jewelry and ermine. Say, you've seen Ruby Diamond. No man can look on her and live. She's the ultimate peach. Abby introduced the two principles of the anti-funeral crusade, and we proceeded to get out and look for a band. Well, there wasn't a blessed band we could get. Quincy had caught the only one for sale, coming home from a Schutzenverein hullabaloo, and we was up against it good. Say, says Ruby, what's the matter with a Salvation Army band? They make a whole lot of noise, and they wear blue. 
You can't get em, I says. I'll endow a hospital, says Framingham. I'll give em a million new uniforms. I'll put up for the Christmas dinner for all the bums east of the Alleghenies. You drive down to the headquarters, and I'll fix the commander-in-chief if I have to deposit my gold-bearing bonds. I'm going to have a female band in blue, or I'll eat it. Rah for Yale. So we clocks down to see the general. I never heard what it cost young Framingham. They must have taxed him something savage. But he got three bands. They was on their way to the big Thanksgiving Day free feed, and was ordered to meet us at the Flatiron Building. When we got back to the Aster, we found a procession of taxicabs about three-quarters of a mile long, waiting. There was red, green, yellow, and black cars, and a Yale man in each. Moreover, about every one of em had a chorus girl out of the metropolis. The curly girlies was running then, and the crowd was beginning to gather some plenty. The traffic cops was near crazy. I took the head of the line and led the string down 8th Avenue and across 22nd to where the three bands was waiting. Then we set out looking for Quincy's funeral and trouble. Our scouts had come in and located a line of about 33 hearses forming on 2nd Avenue and 34th Street. Anyone who had any sense could be sure that the procession would head straight for Times Square. John Adams Quincy Third was no yap and we were sure he'd calculate to hit the middle of New York City good and hard before he got pulled. So Montrose Framingham give the word to steer up Broadway. The Salvation Lassies struck up. Are you washed? Are you washed? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And off we went. There was some good yelling when we struck the Great White Way, and you needn't think we didn't draw a crowd. It was about half-past seven by this time, and the tenderloin was beginning to get busy. At 34th Street we formed in line two abreast, and the cornets switched to onward Christian soldiers. It was going fine. The cops couldn't stop the Salvation Army, because they had permits, and as for the taxis, ain't they got a right to the street? It was smooth sailing till we got to 42nd Street and we sighted the funeral. There it was, held up east of Broadway, with the Schutzen band playing the Dead March in Saul, and a row of hearses as far as the eye could reach, and a crowd running up and growing bigger every minute. And what do you think? Driving every hearse was a hippodrome chorus girl in evening dress. Johnny Hobbs had certainly done it well. Abby Moonstone was wild. Our fares give the Yale yell, and it was answered by Harvard Raz from the Hippodrome Girls. Quincy stood up and begun to sing, Yale is dead, and then they got the traffic cop's whistle to cross Broadway. On they come. It was so funny you wanted to cry. By this time they was a million people spilled around there, and some fool pulled the fire alarm just to help it along. Now, whether the traffic cop at the corner got rattled and really did blow his come-on whistle, or whether it was a riot call or something, I never knew. The cop denied it. Anyway, we all heard a whistle, and young Framingham yells to me, By the seven pink salamanders of Shiraz, squash, go at em. 
If you'll bust that Harvard guy's hearse, I'll give you a hundred dollars and go bail. I turned back and waved to the line. Come on, I says, and on we went. There was a yell from the mob you could have heard to the flat iron, and I charged for Quincy. I caught his nigh-hind wheel and busted it right to smithereens. Then a mounted cop galloped up and got me. Well, it sure was funny. The hearse keeled over on the hubs and spilled out Quincy and Millie St. Valentine. They jumped just in time and landed on their feet. And in less than two minutes the place was so tangled up with hearses and taxicabs and Schutzenvereins and Salvationists that you couldn't tell which was which. The crowd swarmed into the mess like flies, and then come the fire engines, two steamers from each point of the compass, and after them the ladder trucks and the water tower, and then two patrol wagons full of reserves. Then the police got busy. Well, I was taken to the station about that time, and so I missed it. But I got the story from Millie St. Valentine. The minute John Adams Quincy the Third struck the ground, he seemed to come to and wake up to the fact that he'd got in bad. By Jupiter, he says to Millie, this is going to cost me about four million dollars. Oh, it ain't so bad as all that, says Millie. It'll probably be only ten dollars or ten days. Don't you believe it, says Quincy. I know better. Why, I'm ruined. We've got to beat it. Millie said she thought he was a piker for fair then. She didn't have any idea that he'd more'n just got cold feet. He took her hand and ducked through the crowd with her and rushed her into rectors. Then she found out what he was worrying about. It seems young Quincy had been in hot water before, and his folks was sore. He'd been featured in the police news in Boston papers so often, in fact, that his old man had give it to him straight that if it ever happened again, he'd disinherit him. See how it was? Quincy had already kicked up a row that would make more talk on Broadway than anything that had happened since the Dewey Parade. The morning papers would be full of it. He could just see the scareheads. Young millionaire plays ghastly joke on the Rialto and all like that. Millie kind of felt for him. Quincy was a nice boy and she liked him. So she said, well, the only thing to do is to fix the papers, but it'll cost a lot. I don't care if it costs two hundred thousand, said Quincy. It'll be cheap at the price. Will you come with me, O oh Queen? She said she would. Well, if you know anything about city editors, you can imagine what happened. The minute they see the girl, it was all off, and the more money Quincy offered, the more stubborn they got. What, kill a story like that? Son of a millionaire and the prettiest brunette in NYC? Not much. Look at the pictures. Look at the society slush they could throw in. Think of the well-known clubman stuff and the strikingly beautiful brunette. It was too good to keep back. Quincy was no sooner out of the office with his grouch than the city editor was telephoning to the police stations, ordering photographs and sending for his star reporter. That was the tale all over town. Quincy was perfectly sick. Well, he took Millie home, and she tried to jolly him up, but it was no use. He figured that he was out three millions at least by his folly, and he left her reception room talking a lot about suicide. Millie allows she was pretty badly scared. 
Well, of course, all this time Johnny Hobbs had been good and busy. He phoned in the story as a friend of the paper to every city editor. He sent about a thousand photographs of Millie downtown by messengers, and then he waylaid the ten o'clock club, the theater details from the papers. He tipped them off with all sorts of fancy details he'd doped up, and then he went to bed happy. So did Abby Moonstone, who'd been on the same job with three stenographers. Of course, that was what saved Quincy. Them press agents done it too well. Every city editor in town smelled a plant and give orders at midnight to kill the story. So when John Adams Quincy the Third got up at five o'clock next morning at the plaza and sent down for the papers, expecting to see his name in a three-column scarehead, he spent two hours going through them with a fine tooth comb to find that the funniest thing that had happened on Broadway within the memory of man hadn't been so much as mentioned in a single paper. All the same, it didn't save him his money. Millie married him three weeks afterward and got most of it after all. End of chapter 10